It is, as I said, a joy to be in the house of the Lord and worship together. We uh, have been going through books of the Bible, and we're in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning. And so rather than dig out the best sermon I ever did from history, we're just going to go with the sermon we would be preaching this week. So you get to see what really it's like. Uh, we're, we'll read the first 11 verses, but we're in the third sermon in this passage on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 9 through 11 is where we'll be preaching. We've seen in this chapter, the people were a little worried about the coming of the Lord. And the last chapter was, what happens to us if we die before the Lord comes back? And the encouragement that the dead in Christ shall be raised and precede the living to join the Lord when he returns. And encourage one another with that thought. We don't need to fear death. When we die, we've gone to be with the Lord. And when he returns, the dead will be reunited with their bodies and join the Lord, come with him, and the, the living in Christ shall join him. And we should be greatly then encouraged and not worried about whether we're alive or dead when he returns. Now in the second passage, encouraging them through the thoughts of the end time, he talks about the day of the Lord. And it's a great and terrible day. Now, as Christians, we look forward to it. But for the godless, it means God's wrath is poured out upon them in full, and they're sent to hell. And it's a terrifying day for them. And it's going to come like a thief in the night so that he can catch the wicked in their wickedness. And he warns us to be careful, to be awake, to be sober, meaning to be doing what we're supposed to be doing when he returns so that we won't be caught like that. We'll be ready. We'll be waiting. Like the virgins in the lamps, if you remember the story Jesus told. You know, some of them didn't have enough oil, running around trying to find oil. Those who were ready were waiting for him with their lamps lit to welcome the bridegroom, the Christ. And so now, in the section we'll cover this morning, he talks about the destiny of the Christian. Before we do that, though, we'll read the word and pray. So, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Now, I'm in an ESV Bible, so you can read along in what you, what you have, but I'll read it out loud for us. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need for anyone to write you anything. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation for our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you with many cares and many concerns and many troubles, worrying about our health, worrying about the future of our 
families, the future of our churches, and the future of our country. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to set our cares aside, that we might draw near to you through the word and through thinking of it and the preaching of it, that we might be enriched and encouraged and leave with hearts and filled with joy in your spirit, knowing the truth, knowing the future that really matters, that you will return and we will be with you forever. And so, Lord, we do ask your blessing now upon our preaching time. Be with the words of my mouth, that they be pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The point in verse 9 where we're starting today is that believers will not face the wrath of God. The wrath of God is coming in the great and terrible day of the Lord. The wrath of God, though, on his enemies, on the wicked. Paul has shifted his reasoning and thinking about why we should live a life of wakeful, sober diligence in the light of God. And he's bringing us now to because of what God has destined us for. Salvation. It is by God's appointment. We are destined to obtain it, Paul is saying here. After Paul's sermon in Antioch, his sermons in Antioch and Pisidia in Acts chapter 13, he concludes, The Lord commanded us, saying, That I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Now I want you to note a couple of things there. It was the appointment that caused them to believe. Yes, they heard the word, they trusted deep in their heart, but it was because God had appointed them to that faith that they were able to believe. And we could say that it was their destiny. Man is usually deaf to the word of God. I was a rather bitter atheist till I was 27 years old. I'd been around Christians. I'd had people witness to me. I had no idea what the, what the gospel was until God changed my heart. We see that in Lydia. Lydia was a seller of purple. You remember her in Acts chapter 16? She was listening to Paul come to the riverside and preach. And it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 15, or 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. Now, I had never heard the gospel, even though it had been around me in my life, until God changed my heart. Then I went to hear randomly to a church. I was bored one Sunday, and I heard the gospel. And it's like everything now makes sense. Now I understand because God had changed my heart. He had destined me to faith, even though I was bitter atheist, an enemy of his kingdom, a persecutor of his children. And I am grateful for that. Salvation is from God. We are told why this is a problem by Paul. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
Why? Because we are dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. That was 1 Corinthians 2.14 and Ephesians 2.1. We are dead. Dead men can't save themselves. If a man has drowned and is floating in the water and you throw him a buoy, he can't swim to it and grab it and be pulled to shore. Somebody has to dive in the water and drag him out. That's the way we are. If God doesn't dive in and drag us out, we are lost. We are hopeless. This is not a new idea. God taught this to the people in the Old Testament. Jesus talks about being born again, and I think he's referring to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. I want you to note who's doing what in this passage. It's an important passage for the gospel. Well, for our understanding of the gospel, not for preaching it. He says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will put it in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It is God who changes the heart. My heart was dead, a stone. My ears were deaf. You could tell me the gospel a hundred times and I wouldn't hear it until he took out that heart of stone and put in a living heart of flesh, made me alive again, so that when I heard the gospel, I was excited. I received it with great joy. I put my faith and my hope and my trust in God, because I had a new heart. And what a great thing he has done. I could never have done it myself. Salvation comes from God. That exercise of faith is from him. In Ephesians 2, we read in verse 8 and ten, through 10, By grace you have been saved through faith. In this, the faith, this faith is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of work so that no one can boast. I could not stand up before the congregation and say, I chose to have faith and make myself a great man. I humble myself and say, I was a wretched sinner, deserving of hell unwilling and unable to hear the gospel, to understand the gospel, until he gave me a new heart. And then with great joy I received the gospel and put my faith and my hope and my trust in my Lord. This great work that God does is so important to us. God, God has done wonderful things in the life of the believer and that comes because he has destined us to it. We read in Ephesians 1 that he chose us before the foundation of the world and that he predestined us for the adoption of sons according to the purpose of his will. And our God works out all things according to the purpose and the plan of his will, including taking care of us wretched sinners and bringing us to him. We know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but we are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We'll come back to propitiation a little more, but we were all condemned as sinners. But we found grace from God to save our souls, to draw us to him, that we might believe, that we might be saved, that we might hope in him. Paul's point in our passage today is we have been destined for that, not for his wrath. 
And that is an important thing to remember. That wrath is a terrible thing. People think, oh, God is love. And therefore, God will never punish people or hurt people. And I I always just go, oh, God is love of what? Sin? Sinners? No, he is love of holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And he is infinite in his love and his mercy, but also in his justice. And justice must be served. Just why Jesus tells us in Luke 12, 15, I'll warn you who you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed the body has authority to cast it into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He promises concerning the judgment that he will come and that he will judge the nations and that it is an eternal punishment that waits them. The place where their fire never goes out and their worm never dies. It is a terrible thing. And that is what makes the gospel so wonderful. I have not been saved from simply a difficult life. I have been saved from an eternity of torment and fire where worms devour me, where the fire is never quenched, where there is no hope. That is what I have been saved from. And that is why I praise God for my salvation so much, because it is such a great and wonderful salvation. We've been looking through this section about the wrath of God, and it is terrible. But people also told me when I first became a Christian that God loves sinners. And well, that's half true. He showed his love to sinners by having his son die for their sins. But the Bible says this. Psalm, Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 through 6. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Yes, the God of the Bible... The one true living God hates sinners. He showed love to some of them by sending his son to die for them. But he loves us not in our sin, but as we have been washed by the blood of Christ and made pure and white as snow. That's how he loves sinners. But he hates the sin and the sinner and will throw them into hell. John in his epistles teaches us about the love of God. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has been born of God know, and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is the love of God that was made manifest in, in front of us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, you understand propitiation, a big word. I didn't know what it meant when I read it the first time as a new Christian. It means an atoning sacrifice to turn away wrath. That the propitiation of Christ was not just to purify us of our sins, but to turn aside the wrath of God. And that's why we are not destined for wrath, because Jesus' blood covers our sins and turns away, appeases the wrath of God that was due to us for all that we had done for our wickedness. The wrath of God against sinners is so serious that if, we, if it wasn't paid somehow, we would certainly face God's wrath, eternal punishment in hell, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Now, it's important to note 
that we are saved from God's wrath, but there is a difference between God's wrath and between chastisement, between trials, between things like that. Isaiah says, Behold, the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate, to destroy sinners from it. Land there is the earth, to make the earth desolate and to destroy the sinners from it. We've been talking about that in previous sermons, and since I'm cutting in half today, we'll skip that. But think about that. That's the purpose of the day of the Lord, is to pour out the wrath he has upon the sins of the world and upon the sinners of the world. We're not part of that. We don't face his wrath. However, we do face chastisement. In fact, the Christian is promised to be chastised for their sin. Remember the Hebrews 12, 5 and following? And Romans chapter 8, 1. It does not mean that we'll never suffer in this life, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. But it says, if you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses your sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when he reproves you, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you're a believer, you will suffer chastisement from the Lord for your sin. We all do in many ways, sometimes obvious, Sometimes not so much. I remember somebody asking, you know, I'm a good Christian. I've been faithful my whole life. Why am I suffering now with fill in the disease, cancer, with Parkinson's, with whatever it may be, multiple sclerosis, I know a Christian. Why do I suffer? Well, you know, they say, is it fair? God loves me. I'm redeemed. But what do you deserve? Every sin deserves eternal punishment in hell. What do I deserve? Hell. What am I getting? Something better than that, I can assure you. That's why we can consider it a joy to face trials. And that's the next one. Trials are also part of the Christian life and therefore the progress of our sanctification. If they're chastisement, they teach us, you know, repent of that sin we have faced, we have done. Turn our hearts back to the Lord Draw near to him and he will draw near to you, James says. Cleanse your hands. James also says to count it a joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And I think that was the first sermon I preached down here, in, or the second sermon maybe, I preached down here in Weed. And I had to admit, it was hard for me. And I lost my ministry in Cambodia, which I loved dearly. I had to set the people with uh, immature leadership over them. They weren't fully trained yet because of health. And then I get diagnosed with Parkinson's. Uh, it was a tough time, but it's, I said to the Lord, you know, I, I deserve worse. I can have faith. I can trust. You have promised that all things will work together for good for those who love the Lord and are loved by the Lord. And I am loved by the Lord and I will trust that somehow, well, I can't necessarily see it, this will work out for my good, for my blessing. If not in this life, in eternity. That's the promise. James says, count it all a joy. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may perfect, be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's part of our sanctification process to endure trials, to not quit, to not blame God, to not be bitter, but to rejoice that we have Christ as Savior. Rejoice that we'll be with him forever. Rejoice that we are exempted, as we see in our passage today, from the wrath of God and not face wrath, but face salvation. Peter also gives us encouragement not to be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We share in his sufferings in our trials, and he says rejoice when he is revealed, when the great day of the Lord comes, when he has returned, and all of his people have gone to join him. We will have that great joy, and our trials will seem nothing. And we may even be allowed to understand how they helped us, how they furthered us, or how they challenged us, how they chastised us. We will know, perhaps, then. There's one other trial we face that I should note, persecution. People in Cambodia face terrible persecution when I ministered there. Their families would disown them because they would no longer worship their ancestors. And in their superstition, if you don't worship the ancestor, their ghost will torment the whole family. And so they were very cruel when you became a Christian. And they had never heard anyone preach about persecution in all their days. I was the first. But we're told by Paul, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, evil people and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13. And they said, aha. And we can say, aha. Yes, we sometimes face persecution even in this country. It's mild. I remember at my job, I used to work as an engineer at GE. And being a Christian meant when the boss went out drinking, well, went out to dinner and we'd have dinner as, a, as an organization, once they started drinking and trash-talking people and talking about sin, the Christians would get up and excuse themselves and go home. And the boss would take note of that. You don't approve of what I do? You judge me? Wait until promotion and pay raise time comes. So we all face that little bit of persecution or the anger of a neighbor or a person you share about your faith with. That persecution is normal. Jesus says... Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we are persecuted for our faith, we can rest assured that we are blessed. He goes on to say, Blessed are you when other vi- others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so also they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, we don't need to fear trials. We don't need to fear chastisement or persecution. We should learn from it. We should grow for it. The intent clearly, according to God's word, is that it will help us to grow. And if we're helped to grow, then we should look at it with joy and try to figure out, how can I draw nearer to God through this? How can I glorify God through this? Long ago, when I was interning at a church in New York, yes, New York, The pastor said, you know, you've done a good job this summer. I'm going to take a week's vacation, be out of phone call. You're in charge. Wouldn't you know, 
one of the old saints of the church, goes into the hospital. She had had diabetes her whole life. Now she was facing heart failure. She was on her last leg. I visited her every day, but because of the medication, she wasn't coherent. So they switched her medications, and finally one day she was awake. And I come in, and she's sharing the gospel in her hope that soon she will be with the Lord. She's sharing with her nurse, her doctor, her family. Everybody who had to come into the room (laughs) got to hear about her great hope and her great joy in knowing that she would soon go to be with the Lord. And I found out her family was visiting her, so I came at the time they were there, and we prayed together and encouraged each other with that hope and made sure they understood the gospel because they went to a different church than her. And sure enough, she went home to be with the Lord, and it was a great joy to her and to her family. These trials are not things to be despised, but are opportunities to draw near to God and to glorify God. Now he goes on in verse 9, the end of verse 9, the beginning of verse 10, to tell us that we will not face wrath because Jesus died for us. The main point of our hymn, our main point of our message, the main point of this passage. You remember... We cannot pay for our sin. Jesus said, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Matthew 16, 26. We can't pay for our sin. If we can't pay for our own sin, how could somebody else pay for our sin? If somebody owes you, if two people owe you a billion dollars, and the first one says, I'll take on their debt, let them go. Will you allow them to owe you two billion? No, you're never going to pay the first billion. You know, God does not allow somebody who owes more than they can pay to take on the debt of another who owes more than they can pay. A man cannot pay for the sins of man. The ransom of life is costly. It will never suffice that he can live on forever and never see the pit. Psalm 49, verse 7 through 9. What can we pay for our sins? We can't. No man can ransom another. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot make ourselves alive. And for, but for your sake, God, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is not through paying for our own sins ourselves. God does not weigh us in the balance and when the payment exceeds the sin, we'll be released from hell. Hell is eternal. What pays for our sin? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You might wonder, how can Jesus pay at all? If I've already made a point of saying, we cannot pay at all, another man cannot pay at all for us, how does Jesus pay at all? Well, first, it's pretty simple. Jesus was indeed truly man. He is a valid substitute. He lived his life fulfilling all of God's law, never once sinning in any way, earning the promised reward. Do this and you shall live. He earned eternal life. And then he went to the cross and he died. And he was able to take our sins upon himself as a man. However, as a man, he never would have been able to pay for our sins. 
It would never have been sufficient. It is only because he is truly God that Jesus' life had infinite worth. And that infinite worth allows for his death to cover all the sins of all of his people throughout all time. To pay it in full. And we know it's paid in full how? He was raised for our justification, Paul says. What does that mean? Well, death is the wages of sin. You die because of sin. When our sin was put upon him, he died. But in dying, he paid for all of our sins. We can be confident of that because he was raised from the dead. Why was he raised from the dead? The Bible says because death no longer had hold over him. Why did it not have hold over him? Because there was no longer any sin on him. He had paid for it all. And thus, we can have that great hope that Jesus' blood does wash us from all sins. And we can be confident that it's true because he was raised from the dead. And we know that there is no sin left for us to pay or to suffer through. And this salvation comes to us through faith. John explains, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. John 3.36. Yes, that's part of that John 3.16 passage. We're not destined for wrath because God has taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh, caused us to have faith in him, and that faith in him, that trust in him, that hope in him is the condition to receive the work of Christ on the cross and in his life. Paul says that we've been justified by faith. Justified here meaning on the day of judgment when the books are open and our sins are listed, Jesus says, I paid that. We're justified. We are innocent before God now. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace instead of wrath. Joy instead of condemnation. He continues down in verse 9, that we've been justified by the blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? That's in Romans chapter 5. You know, what a great joy and hope to know that our salvation is certain, that God has taken care of it through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, so whether we are awake or asleep, when he returns we will live with him. Now this passage is a little confusing because awake and asleep are mentioned in this section, but the awake, be awake, you Christians, because the wicked sleep. Well, if we are asleep, aren't we the wicked? What is he referring to here? I think you have to go back and read it again more carefully and read the previous section to understand that whether we are awake or or asleep means whether we are alive or whether we are dead, sleeping. We will be with the Lord forever once he returns. And so we're told to encourage one another with these words. And that was the last section as well, the end of chapter 4, where he talks about that. Again, we will meet the Lord, we will be with him, we will not be forgotten if we are dead. We will be raised and reunited with our bodies, our new glorified heavenly bodies. And we will live, and we will live with him forever. You know, Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Jesus Christ, we are of all men to be most pitied. Why? 
Because in this life we will face persecution. We will give up our life for him. We will face denial of self, denial of our desires, our sinful desires, our sinful pleasures. And we will be hated by the world. Our hope is in the end. Remember, if you read ahead to the end of the book, that's something I did when I became a Christian. How does this all end? You get to the end of Revelation 21 or the beginning of Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That is the new heaven and the new earth. That is what we live for. We live for the day Christ returns. We live for that day when we will be in the new heaven and the new earth. And yes, then we can suffer in this life. Then we can have sickness and persecution. Then we can deny ourselves knowing there's a future reward. He concludes in verse 11, and I'll end there. Given these truths, once again, we should mutually encourage one another, build each other up. He will come. He will bring his perfect justice to all his enemies and all our enemies. The justice will be done. Because Jesus died for our sins, we will not face that wrath, that justice. The justice was carried out upon our Lord who chose to take our place to save our soul. So we should encourage one another. In what? Well, in this passage, to be awake, to be sober, to be ready for the day of the Lord whenever it comes. Paul tells us to do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you also shine as lights in the world. Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, the day of his return, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Philippians 2, 14 through 16. We, should, we are encouraged by this passage to put our hope in that day, but to live our life in the here and now in preparation for that day, that we might be holy, that we might be blameless. Now, how many of you are holy and blameless? Yeah, I'll put my hand down. Uh, we work I'm towards that goal. So in God's eyes, I'm holy and blameless. When he Unless judges. He means, Jesus. When he judges. But in our daily life, you could ask my wife, please don't. <laughs> but you could ask my wife, I'll admit, no, I am not perfect. I am a long way to go. But when I die, or when he returns, I will be transformed. I will be purified, not just legally, but in reality. But for now, my life is a life of continual effort to sanctify myself, to turn away from sin. And that is what we are to be encouraging each other. Think about that day. Think about the terrible day of the Lord when his wrath will be poured out on sinners. Do you want to be numbered among them? Make sure your faith is true. And how do we know our faith is true? Jesus says, by their fruits shall you know them. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Are you producing fruit? More and more. That is our desire and that is our hope. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your many blessings. 
We thank you that your son, Lord, died for our sins, that we might be washed whiter than snow, that we might stand before you at the day of judgment, not facing your wrath, but facing your love. And Lord, we want to live our lives for your kingdom and your glory. It's tough. It's hard. The temptations of sin come every day. We stumble in everything we do in every way. And so, Lord, we beg you to send us your spirit to help us to grow in our faith and our knowledge of you, to grow in our practice of the things we know, that we might glorify you and that we might hear on that day, well done, my good and faithful servant. We ask you these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.